Good morning. Let me invite you to take your New Testaments. Open them with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans 13 is where we'll be together. I'm looking forward to our fifth Sunday gathering tonight at 5 o'clock. We have two Brians speaking to us uh, tonight, and I look forward to what they have to say to us from God's Word. We have several uh, young men that are going to be participating, and we're really excited about that. So we're looking forward to the worship and those who we get to worship with tonight. So I look forward to that. Also, um, after last night's uh, gathering of the church, I thought about changing you know, my sermon, because some of you people are, well, we'll have to talk about that another time, evidently, but it sure was a good time being together. It's good to see you this morning, and I want to remind you this morning that our fall focus is that we are seeking to find our place in the world. And as I was thinking about that a couple of weeks ago in my office, I just broke out in laughter because I got to thinking that in this series, we're talking about religion and last week, possessions, money, and the week, this week, politics. And so religion, money, and politics. If memory serves me right, that's the recipe for the atomic bomb, if I remember correctly. That's the kind of things that people really struggle with. And it kind of shows us how difficult it is to be a disciple in this world, to find our place in this world. And today we're going to look at the subject of what are we to be as citizens in this world. You know, the Bible gives us a very different picture about government than what we're going to hear from our politicians. It's a different perspective on government than you will hear on the news channels or what you hear from radio personalities. What we read in the Bible about our perspective of government is the disciples out of this world view of citizenship. And I want to tell you why we chose to talk about that in this series on finding our place in the world. Because last year, when we were planning this series, at the end of the year, our country was facing a lot of social unrest. People were very angry about racial issues and about uh, the government's response to the COVID pandemic. We had clashes over gender issues and abortion. There was violence and people died because of police actions and uh, the political elections. And so as we were going through all of that, it seemed that we as God's people needed to get God's perspective of how we ought to live in this world, particularly as citizens. And today we're going to do that by considering one of the most extensive teachings about citizenship in the New Testament. It's found in Romans 13. And I need to tell you that this text describes God's ideal for human government, but not very often the reality of human government. In other words, this text is not going to deal with governments gone wrong but it is going to give us an unsoiled picture of what God intended governments to be and what He intended our response to governments to be. We're going to have to go outside of this text to find any exceptions. But I think it's very important for us to begin with 
what God initially intended. You know, whenever we go immediately to exceptions, what we are showing is that we don't understand God's original intent. We do this with marriage. And so marriage gets into a little trouble, and the first thing we want to start looking to is all of the exceptions. But if the fact is, if we would have spent time as husbands and wives dealing with God's word the way we're supposed to, being the husbands we're supposed to and the wives we're supposed to, we wouldn't have got to the exceptions. And perhaps we as a people need to spend more time looking at God's purpose for government and our right response to it, and things might actually become a little bit more like God intended them to be. But to look at this text, we first of all need to understand what Paul is trying to do in this text. First of all, this text describes how our salvation in Christ changes our relationships. It changes our relationships with fellow believers. He talks about that in 12 in verses, chapters 14 and 15. Our salvation changes the way that we interact towards unbelievers. Chapter 13 and the end, of, the end of chapter 13 and the end of chapter 12. But right in the middle, he says that since we have received the mercy of God, which he has spent 11 chapters describing how we have been justified by faith in Christ and therefore received mercy from God to be his children, since we have received mercy from God, it ought to change the way that we act towards government. In other words, the way we act towards government is a reflection of our salvation. But in addition to that, what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he begins the book by describing the effects of sin on humanity, Jew and Gentile, and it is an ugly picture. Sin has caused humanity to get into all kinds of immorality, all kinds of violence and hatred and conflict and division. That's what sin has done. But because chapter 4 through chapter 11, God has sent Jesus into the world and we have been saved through Him, we have salvation. And chapters 12 through 15 describe the effects of being saved. And guess what? It's the exact opposite. That since we are saved, we live by righteousness. We express forgiveness to all people. We express the love of God to all people. And we act differently. We act with peace even when it comes to our governing authorities. And so again, we see that this text is central to turning, turning back the effects of sin in this world. But in its immediate context, what Paul is dealing with is this situation in which we might be hurt by the people who are around us. And if you have your Bibles open, you're looking with me at chapter 12, and he says that if you, it's, it's possible, verse 18, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. So if you get treated wrong, never avenge yourself, he says. If somebody's done you wrong, don't avenge yourself. That vengeance belongs to God. Instead, he says in verse 21, you overcome evil with good. Now, what is God going to do about wrongdoing in this world? God has a plan. And his plan about dealing with wrongdoing in this world 
is reason that he established human governments. And that's why he then comes to what he comes to in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let's read our text together. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But... If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, and not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor with whom honor is owed. So you'll notice that this text begins with a very simple and universal command, and that is that we are to be subject to governing authorities. Christians are not to be involved in anarchy. They are not to be subversive, neither are they to be apathetic. But government, but Christians are called to be obedient to, to follow the direction of governing authorities. Now we'll see in a minute the exceptions to this, but please do not miss the general rule. The general rule is that God desires a people who recognize the value of authority. After all, he is the authority above all authorities. And as we understand authority, we see that he has given some of that authority to govern, governing bodies, and we are to be submissive to that. Now, whenever you talk about submission or subjection, nobody likes that. I get it. We all experience it one form or another for our own good. But what Paul does then at this point is give us some reasons why we are to subject to governing authorities. And the first reason he gives is because it was God's idea. You know, it's not uncommon to come across people today who say, ah, I don't need marriage. I just want to go sleep around with whoever I want to sleep around and, and I want to do my own thing. And you can do that. But you will answer to God. Because God has created marriage for the good of human sexuality. And a lot of people can go around and say, I don't like government. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. You can do that. But you can answer to God. Because God has instituted human governments for the good of human society. And so he says in verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. Now I understand we look at government 
And especially we look at the arrogance and the selfishness and the deception of political leaders and we just want to chuck it all. We just want to go do our own thing. I get it. But look at what happens when you do that. Look at the book of Judges and you see what happens. Look at this world and see what happens in countries where governments break down. There is an increase in oppression and suffering. And it is because God created human authorities for the good of humanity. Did you notice that's what he said? That God created, gave them authority for our good, he says. God created human authorities for the good of humanity. And so the good news is, is that God is carefully watching these human authorities and what they're doing. And ultimately, they are going to be accountable to God, clearly on the day of judgment, but maybe even before them. Daniel recognized this in his own life. Remember Daniel from the Old Testament? He gets exiled from his land. Why? Because the governing authorities were disobedient to God. He saw Nebuchadnezzar deposed. Why? Because he had been disobedient to God. He sees Babylon ultimately yield to the Persian Empire, why? Because they had been disobedient to God. To where uh, Daniel, excuse me, his name didn't come to my mind. Uh, Daniel ultimately says that it is God who appoints authorities. He sets up kings and he removes kings. He changes times and seasons. And so governments need to beware. God is watching. And God will judge how they are doing their work. But in the meantime, while God has established human governments, in the meantime, what we have been called to do is we have been called to be submissive to it because they are, verse 4 says, God's servant for your good. Did you notice how many times it calls uh, government God's servant or ministers of God? It uses almost religious terminology to describe what governments are intended to do. And they are to be carrying out God's work of doing approval to those who are doing good and rendering the wrath of God upon those who are doing evil. Paul here is clearly referring to the previous chapter when he talked about somebody doing you wrong. And he said, don't take vengeance into your own hands. Well, what does that mean? Wrongdoers just get to go buy scot-free? Certainly they're going to be judged in, in the day of judgment, but how about between them? Chapter 13. God has set up an impartial and powerful institution that has as its purpose the punishment of wrongdoing and the approval of those things which are good. In other words, law and order isn't just a TV show. It is God's purpose for government. And that's why Paul told Timothy to do this. He said, pray, 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. What are we praying for? We are praying for government to accept and value what is good and to punish and remove what is bad so that we might have a peaceful life in which 
we can express the righteous holiness of God that the world so desperately needs to see. In fact, the very, very, very next verse is because God wants everyone to be saved. That's the reason that we pray for them to do the job that God has given them to do. And so he circles around back in verse 5 to where he began when he said, therefore one must be in subjection. The fact is, is that some of the social unrest that we have seen recently is people taking vengeance into their own hands and showing disrespect for authorities and advocating openly anarchy. And what Paul has to say about that kind of violence and that kind of disrespect and that kind of anarchy is remember God's purpose for government and be submissive to it. Now, Paul ends this section with some practical ways in which we express this submission. And he says the way you do it is by paying taxes and showing honor. In other words, if the government is supposed to be that which is supporting order by accentuating what is good and removing what is bad, they need the resources to do that. So pay your taxes so they can fulfill God's given purpose. But then secondly, he talks about the way our attitude should be towards government. And this one's got a little bit more challenge to us. God has already given the governing authorities honor. He has given them respect. And he wants us to show that honor and respect to them. In other words, uh, we are to show respect in what we say and how we act towards government. An often overlooked passage in this regard is Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. I was thinking, if this, was, if this verse was put at the top of Facebook and Twitter, I just wonder how many millions they would lose. This is what it says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I wonder how many millions they'd lose. My sad suspicion is they wouldn't lose anything, because we know that already. And we keep talking like that. And so what God wants us to realize is that the way that He created governments, the reason they're there in the first place, He created marriage in the first place, and it's never perfect. And he created governments, and they're not perfect. But they are the best way in a sinful, fallen world for evil to be restrained and good to be allowed to flourish. And so we are to do our best to support it, to encourage it, and to make sure it's what God intended. You know, on one occasion, the Herodians and the Pharisees came up to Jesus to throw him in some hot water. Best way you do that is you talk politics. And so they asked, who should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, you got a quarter? I don't know, something like that, whatever theirs was called. And they said, yeah, and they gave him their coin. And on the coin was the, the imprint of Caesar. And he says, you give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. And you give to God the things that belong to God. 
And in doing that, he says, number one, there is something that belongs to Caesar. God has a role for human government, even wicked people and weak human governments. But then he placed a limit upon that when he says there is something you render to God. And God has an authority that is greater than any human authority. And therefore he says, as we go on throughout the New Testament, that those who know God and worship and obey God will do so even if it means they must disobey Caesar. Now, I want to say these situations are the exception. But we see from other passages that when Paul says we are to be in subjection to human authorities, that that is not an absolute statement. There are times in which the authority of God overrules the authority of man. In fact, the, the truth of it is the authority of God always overrules the authority of man, in whatever realm it's in. For example, there are times when laws are enacted that contradict God's law, and we are going to have to not obey them. And there are many examples of this in Scripture. For example, when Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby Hebrew boys, the text says that the midwives refused the law. And here's why they refused it. Listen to this. Exodus 1 verse 17. It wasn't that he's a sweet little baby boy or he's a Hebrew and I am too. Listen to this. The midwives feared God and they did not do as the king commanded them. And they let the male children live. Government has no right to command Christians to do immoral things. To participate in things that are immoral. Government has no right to do that. And then we must render to God what is God's. For that doesn't belong to Caesar. But in addition to that, government cannot forbid us from worshiping God. Government cannot force us to put the idols of this world before God. This is one of the big lessons of the book of Daniel. Daniel is in our situation. His citizenship was in another country. But he had been living as an exile in this country called Babylon. And Jeremiah said, while you're in Babylon, you work for the good of Babylon. You pray for the good of Babylon. You get in there and you work with your hands and you do what's best for Babylon. You make Bab Babylon's success your goal. But there are times in which you cannot do that for Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes along and says, you've got to bow down and you've got to worship something other than God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to disobey. Now, they didn't rush the idol with their swords and hammers and try to break it down. They just didn't obey. Later, when King Darius says, you can't pray to anybody except for me for a month, David went and he continued to do what God wants him to do, pray to God. Now, he didn't go try to assassinate the king. He didn't go lead some kind of of uh, revolt against the law. He just disobeyed what the government said that he had to do. 
God showed His approval to them by how He delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel from the power of the human authorities and showed that He was the authority over the authorities. In fact, the book of Revelation is all about how the early church was severely persecuted because they would not share the worship of God with the worship of Rome. They would not join in the two. And the fact is, is it doesn't matter if it's government or our family structure or our workplace. Whenever there is an authority in our life that is in contradiction to the authority of God, where the laws of man violate the laws of God, we must disobey. There's a limit to our subjection. But most notably in the New Testament, we find that whenever governments enact laws that forbid God's people from preaching the gospel, then that government must be disobeyed. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the Sanhedrin banned the apostles from preaching the gospel. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 18. They called the apostles before them. And they commanded them, charged them, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter. And John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Later on, when the stakes were raised and the apostles were brought in, not just intimidated, but beaten this time, they said the same words, we must obey God rather than man. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. Now, we've applied those verses, we must obey God rather than man, to all kinds of different situations, and sometimes rightly so. But I have to tell you, I love its original context. That God's people were so passionate to go out there and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ that when the authorities said, you can't do that anymore, they said, we've got to disobey. Because the most important thing in our life is letting other people know about Jesus. <laughs> How about that? Not just traipsing on our property rights or traipsing on my right to make money but you're traipsing upon my responsibility to tell people about Jesus, and you can't do that. <laughs> Scott writes this, John Stott, as he was summarizing these commands. He said, all of these heroic refusals were done in spite of threats with the, which accompanied the edicts. In each case, civil disobedience involved great personal risk, including the possibility of loss of life. And in each case, its purpose was to demonstrate its submissiveness to God, not their defiance of government. Yeah, that's the motive. The issue is not we hate government. The issue is when government makes a law that asks us to disobey God, what we are saying to all people is that we love and worship and honor and obey God above all. You know, as I contemplated the difficulty of this subject, the difficulty of being submissive to government when it is so corrupt and arrogant and 
deceptive. And when I contemplated the times in which we may need to disobey government, I wrote this prayer. I said, Lord, give us wisdom to know when we should submit to government and when we should disobey human authorities and give us the wisdom to know how to do it. And that's my prayer. But we should also note that throughout the Bible, that we, God's people are not given the authority to raise up and take human governments down by force. This is something we see throughout, even with David and Saul. Uh, in the story of Jesus being arrested, you remember that Peter takes out a sword and he chops off the ear of one of the guys who's come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus tells him what? Put your sword up. If you take up the sword, you'll die by the sword. That's what you'll do. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples would fight. But they are not of this world. Our role as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this world is to overcome evil with good. It is to persuade people from error by the truth of the gospel. It is to express love to those who hurt us. It is to live out the effects of the gospel in a world that is full of the effects of sin. I experience it regularly. How about you? Frustrated with government. And a lesson like this isn't always easy to hear. But one thing that helps me in times in which I'm frustrated is to remember that my citizenship is in heaven. And that's a citizenship that's always perfect. It's always for my good. It helps me sing, this world is not my home. It's what caused the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison, unjustly put there by the Roman authorities to write this. Philippians 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. One thing that we can be certain is that God rules over the kingdoms of men, and that He will not allow governments that are unjust to live very long, but He will allow governments to exist as long as they are doing good and restraining wickedness. And if they don't, he removes them, but ultimately it is his kingdom that's the only one that's going to last. In fact, when Peter tore off that sword, you know, and took off the guy's ear, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, I could call down legions of angels from heaven right now and wipe out this injustice. He could have done that at the cross and he can do that now. But why did he not do it? It's because he went to the cross and he died and he gave those sinners an opportunity to be saved. And as we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven right now, that's our goal is to be His representatives in a world that's full of sin so that some of them might be saved. And so we're going to sing right now
a song we sing also at the 915 in order to emphasize it, put it in our minds, and it is this. The kingdoms of this earth pass away one by one, but the kingdom of heaven remains. It is built on the rock, and the Lord is its king, and forever and ever he reigns. Let's stand and sing that like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Come if you need to respond to the gospel.